0: here as I keep on saying every time I can. and and uh, I have to say that Saltash are very very grateful to you people today for letting me do two, the, the two things. Um, so yeah, uh, you were in first and uh, that is something extra that got added in and they asked me to ask the leadership team here if it would be alright to go across there this afternoon and then dash back which we are doing and uh, yeah as, as I say they are just extremely grateful that you've, you've uh, allowed that to happen. So, let's read again, shall we, from the book of Romans. We're continuing our series in the book of Romans, which is going to go on till uh, the end of the year or the crack of doom, whichever comes first. And uh, we're reading uh, the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8 this morning. To start with, though, we'll just read uh, the first 11 verses. So, verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 says Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life be free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature god did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us as we do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You have. Are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit. Lives in you. Well, we'll read some more verses later on, but that's quite enough tangled theology to start us off. Let's see uh, what we can make of this. It's not a great day for an airship, really, is it? 165,000 people in the drizzle. But um, it's amazing the fascination that things like that have, isn't it? Um, we have always been, right down through the centuries, fascinated with the possibility that we can. Slip the bonds of our natural condition and get up there, up in the sky. And uh, this is a picture from 1903 of the first flight that the Wright brothers managed to make at Kitty Hawk. I think it was about 120 yards or something like that. So it wasn't exactly big. It wasn't picked up by the papers much except in their own area. And people were trying all kinds of different ways uh, to make a flight happen. You see all sorts of weird and wonderful contraptions in those days, none of which really worked too well. And uh, people kept on trying because it was the biggest prize of all to get up in the air, to stop being pulled down to the ground in the way that we had been for centuries. This guy died trying. And... uh, um, People built the most incredibly complicated craft, but none of it worked until 1903. Then a year later, that was happening. This is Wilbur and Orville Wright doing their first real serious flight. After that, it just took off, didn't it? And now there are planes flying all over the world. (laughs) It's all right. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. Right, it's okay. But anyhow, uh, this, this, this this is what we've got nowadays. Now, why was it so difficult? What did they have to discover to to, to get planes into the air? Well, it wasn't something that wasn't there before. Flight wasn't invented in 1904. (laughs) It was something that had always been there. The possibility had always been there. The problem is, of course, a natural law. The law of gravity pulls things down to the ground. If I throw my car keys up into the air, which is not a good idea, it comes straight down again. And you know, it's the case. You cannot climb up into the sky by yourself. There's a a natural law that gets hold of you, stop that, get down to ground again. And the law of gravity stops things happening. And what we discovered at the start of the 20th century was a different set of natural laws called the laws of aerodynamics. (laughs) And they triumph over the law of gravity, if you like, if you've got a plane that's got the right engine and plenty of fuel in it and it's made in the right way, and it enables you to stay up there. The law, one law, triumphs over another law. The law of gravity hasn't gone away. As soon as your plane runs out of fuel or something goes wrong with it, whew, and you come again. It's not that the law of gravity is suspended in the end of a way. It's still there. It will always be there. But the laws of aerodynamics mean that we can actually take off from a runway and stay up there for a while anyway. <laughs> What's all this got to do with anything? Well, last week we were lo- looking at Romans chapter 7 which talks about the experience that people have when they try to be what they know they ought to be. We all have this sense inside us of what we ought to be, and we can't make it most of the time. And Paul says in Romans 7, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me. This is the law of gravity. Waging war against the law of my mind. Making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What?" a wretched man I am. And uh, as we saw last week, theologians down to the center said, who exactly is speaking here? Is this somebody who's not a Christian? Um, and uh, we saw that there are various distinguished commentators who say, no, nah, this is definitely the pre-Christian life. Then we see other commentators, lots of them, perhaps the majority of them, who say, no, no, this is something that can happen to Christians too. When you first start living for God, you may have all the power that you need right there inside you. God supplies that the them but you come to him. But it's still a difficult job. And uh, as we said last week, if this guy is a Christian, and I was a coward and didn't say what I thought, um, and actually I changed week by week, but uh, if he is a Christian, the guy in this passage, what does the passage tell us? We said three things. First of all, you'll never get away from the sense of being a sinner. As long as you live, if you're trying to live for God the way you should, you will always be conscious of your failings. You will never reach the stage where you say, ha, I made it now. I can just relax and take the break off. That's the kind of people we'll be talking about tonight, incidentally, if you want to come at 5.30 and see if I've actually made it back from Plymouth. Um, uh, the, the, the way that some people just go, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, I've done everything I've got to do. But if you really keep trying, then you'll never uh, get away from the sense that you're a sinner. Second, you'll never get rid of the struggle against sin there will always be temptations that you weren't expecting that will come right out of left field and hit you hard, and you'll suddenly find you're in a battle once again just when you think you've cracked it something comes back probably nothing new probably something that you thought you'd conquered and got over years before and then suddenly you're hit by it again because the devil doesn't give up easily and the third thing we said last week was you can move into chapter 8 because although chapter 7 talks about a problem, the struggle that's really there, because the law of gravity does not go away, there is another law that can come into place in your life that changes everything. This is Eugene Peterson, the guy who did the uh, translation, of The Message. Now, I don't know what he was like as a banjo player. He died a couple of years ago, but he certainly did a brilliant translation. Many people think The Message is too colloquial, too up-to-date, whatever, and, you know, it's, it's not proper translation because it's not word for word. Well, no translation really is word for word because you can't translate one language perfectly into another. And okay, it's fair enough, the message is Eugene Peterson's individual, personal spin on what the Bible is saying. But it's not just him. For for one thing, he was one of the most intelligent people uh, and Bible scholars around before he died. And so he chooses his words in the message with great care. For another thing, he ran every single passage a whole bunch of distinguished scholars who said mm, that's not quite you could express it like this and so it's very carefully chosen although it's a very easy translation to read and uh, what he says at the start of chapter 8 gets the words that we've read across a bit like this with the arrival of jesus the messiah that faithful dilemma that's the problem of chapter 7 the law of gravity dragging us down all the time is resolved those who enter into christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hand of sin and death. In words, Christians don't have to go around all the time trying and failing and trying and failing and beating the breast. I'm wretched, I'm wretched, this is hopeless, I can't do it. God can set you free from the thing that's dragging you down. So, in the Christian life, there are these two laws going on as well. And the first is the law of sin and death, a thing that drags you down every time you think, I'm doing fine, I'm doing great, I'm a victorious Christian. Ooh, suddenly you get dragged down, you find, oh, no, I'm not. I have the same old feelings, the same old impulses, I'm the same bad person I always was. But Paul says there's another law, like the laws of aerodynamics, that can keep you flying. And that's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. God's Holy Spirit can enable you, despite the downward pressure of sin sin inside you, it can keep you up in the air. It can keep you going in a way that nothing else can. I think this chapter is talking about three different things, explaining how the spirit of life in Christ Jesus' law actually works. The first thing is he talks about where Jesus comes in. And that's the verses that we've read. Then he talks about where you come in. Because you have something to do with this process too. And third and finally, he talks about where the spirit comes in. So that's what we're looking at this morning. First of all, where Jesus comes in. I used to go into schools quite a bit, don't do so much nowadays, and do lots of magic tricks for, for, for kids. And one of the things that always got people going was the magic light bulb absolutely brutal we may have talked about it before but uh, i was trying to put it together for today and i just couldn't get the thing working it's it's fallen apart so sorry you're just going to trust me when i say this is a brilliant trick what you do is you take this light bulb thing into a classroom with you and you give it to some child in the front row and you say okay i want you to think very hard that you see this light bulb light up and of course nothing happens and you go come on come on get a bit harder think. think just just think light think bulb think you know megawatts, and nothing happens. Then I take it back into my hand and say, well, couldn't do it. And immediately it lights up. And somebody hey, let me have a go at that. And so they all have a go one after another, and none of them can make it work. Why not? Because they're not married. I've got a ring on my finger, and on that bulb there are two contact points, and when I hold it in my hand, I make sure I'm putting the ring, joining the, the two contact points, bridging the gap, and then the current can flow. And the fact is, the all the power that that bulb needs is right there inside it. It's just joining it up and making it work. Most bulbs you need to screw into a socket. This has all the power it needs there inside it, a little battery that makes it work. It just needs to be connected upright. And the Bible says that's basically what happens when you become a Christian, that the contacts are joined up the circuit can flow again and you find that all of the power that you need is there inside you because god's holy spirit is living in you and making it happen and these verses that we've read say three things go on first of all there's a change in our thinking those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind on what the spirit desires you, know, you, you start seeing from a different perspective. God changes the way you think. And instead of falling into the same old temptations that you always did, you start seeing what life could be like if you lived it from God's perspective. And your mind starts to change. And you start to look at life in a different way. And it's not full of opportunities to, to sin as it used to be. What you see instead is the way that God wants to you, use you and give you opportunities to, to make your life more complete and to bless and help other people and to bring back to him. The praise and the glory that He deserves, we make it our aim to please Him," says the Apostle Paul. That's what it's all about—a change in our thinking, but there's a change in our spirituality as well, at a deep level that you don't understand. Something is happening inside you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But you people, he says, if Christ is in you, you know your your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And one of the things that happens when you become a Christian is you become alive to God in a way that you never were before. And Paul says, this is the other thing. Not just your thinking changes, but your whole spirit changes as well. You begin to realize you have a contact with, with somebody, and he says more about that later on in the passage, somebody you've never been in contact with before, and your whole spirit has come along. The third thing is a change in your prospects. He says, you know, if you are uh, in this situation where... Um, The the, 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 the crisis in you. Your body is dead because of sin. What does that mean? Well, just look at me. I mean, I'm in the 70-point category. You can see that there's some things I'm not going to do again in my life. I'm never going to score the winning goal for for Scotland in the World Cup final in the same year that I, I, you know, and take a space rocket to Mars or anything like that. I'm getting old and decrepit. My hair is falling out. My teeth have already fallen out. You know, and and, and uh, you know, you wake up in the morning, and think, oh, another day, and say, yeah, another day. You know, your body declines, and one of these days, <laughs> unless Jesus comes back fast and rescues me, you'll be at my funeral. Well, you might not because some of you're older than me, but still, you know. <laughs> It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Your body is still under the grip of the death that sin brought into the world. But your spirit, ah, its different. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And so you have a different prospect as well. And Paul goes on to say, if that's the case, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who lives in you. And one of these days your body will rise from the grave spirit soul and body you'll be there in the presence of jesus and then the grip is never going to claim you again changing your prospects you know where you're going this life is not the only time you have to do all the things on your bucket list you you can do whatever you uh, uh, are able to do through jesus who's going to give you eternal life so that's where Jesus comes in, that's where God comes in. The second thing is, where do you come in? You know, this, on the screen, is something I have never been able to do. I know I should not come to a seaside place like painting and make this revelation, but it is true. I grew up in a seaside village in Scotland where ver- very few people could swim. I mean, it was a fishing village, you know? And fishermen, I don't know, it's a twisted mentality, but they used to think that if you went out on a boat and you fell over the side, that was you. To learn to swim was cheating. And so it was actually a macho thing <laughs> to be a fisherman and not be able to swim. And so we never had fish, uh, <laughs> fishing lessons. We never had swimming lessons at school or anything like that. And very few kids in my age group could swim. And uh, uh, I just never learned. And because I never learned when I was young, you know, I've made several attempts, and Auntie put me through several. You will learn to swim. Come on, you're going down bass with Paul Minute or whatever. And uh, she's tried I, again, get I just can't do it. Know, there's something in me that just doesn't trust the water. I don't think I'm ever going to do it now. I've tried. I, I, I have tried. I got once across a swimming pool, You know, the broad side, not the long side. I, I made it right across without my foot touching the bottom. But usually when I get in the water and I start looking down at the bottom, I think there is nothing to hold me. I'm just going to go gracefully down to the very bottom and hit the plug hole. And you know, I just can't do it. And there are two things, it seems to me, uh, that are involved in swimming. The first is you've got to trust the water. The water will hold you up. It doesn't look like it will. But you've got to trust it. And when you learn to trust and relax in the water, apparently, that's how you start doing it. And it's the same thing. Living the Christian life. You have a new power inside you that's invisible. When it came in, you didn't go, oh, and feel some great sensation of it arriving. It just came invisibly. And you might not trust it. You might think, I'm just the same. Nothing has altered. I'm just going to hit the bottom again and again and again. Not true. Trust the power that's there inside you. The second thing you've got to do, actually, is move your arms and legs, isn't it? Uh, Presumably pr- not in that way, but uh, whatever. But anyhow, you know, I, I can do the moving my arms and legs bit on dry land. I know exactly what to do, but uh, I just can't do it when I get in the water. But there's a bit where you've got to cooperate as well. If you fly there, there thinking, I'm trusting the water, I'm trusting the water, you are going to go down to the bottom. You've got to put in a bit of activity as well. And so, in this whole business of this new power working in you, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, you have a bit to do as well. Now, that's the next few verses. Let's just read them. So, verse 12 onward says this. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live So it's saying, yes, God has put this power inside you. So it doesn't turn you into some sort of robot. You don't march around all day. Ah, good works. I must do good works. I must do God's will. I must do the right things and not the ro-. You know, you're not a robot. You still have choices to make. And you have, he says, to live by the spirit, not by your old evil nature. What does living by the spirit mean? He talks about two things here. And they're both important. The first thing is putting to death the misdeeds of the body you have to stand up and look at what you're tempted to do and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to fall into that pattern. I'm not going to let my bad temper take over. Okay, I have a weakness for, uh, I don't know, uh, comfort or something like that. And it's not a bad thing, but I can can easily just spend my entire time ministering to myself. I'm not going to do that. Okay, I have a tendency to exaggerate and not tell quite what the truth is. I'm not going to do that. And you put to death the misdeeds of the body. You say, I'm going to stand out against this. And this is where you start trusting the water because something inside you is going to say, you can't do that, you'll go straight to the bottom. And you find that the new power that's there inside you, invisible and intangible though it be, is able to keep you up. The second thing is being dragged along by the Spirit. Paul says, as many as are led by the Spirit... They are the children of God. And sometimes you think about being led by the Spirit as, oh, I was led to give out hymn number 576. or I, I was led by the Spirit to come and visit you. As if it's a kind of gentle suggestion. I mean, Not at all. The Greek word used in this passage is, as many as are dragged along by the Spirit, they are the children of God. What the Spirit wants to do with you is give you a hefty shove in the right direction. The leading of the Spirit is not a gentle suggestion in the back of your mind. I think you might go and visit Mrs. So and So. No, it's something that's a, a forceful thing. God does not want you drifting into sin again, and God will do everything He can to to, 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 to build that new mind in you, to keep you away from the, th- the the things that would otherwise drag you down. There's a verse that makes the promise that no temptation that we ever get then is common to human beings. It's not specially strong for us. God will always, with it, provide a way of escape. And so the Spirit's always going to be working to drag you back in the right direction. No, you don't. Over here. And if you have ever felt that tug inside you, and that sense of being dragged in the right direction by something beyond yourself, that's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. So you say yes to the Holy Spirit, and you say no to the misdeeds of the body. And that leads to the third thing and the final thing this morning, which is where the Spirit comes in. What's the Holy Spirit going to do with us? Well, says Paul, if you're led by the Spirit of God, you are children of God. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been given, he says, the Spirit of Adoption. What does that actually mean? Well, on the, the right-hand side there, you can see uh, various people who were adopted in Roman society. Now, we tend to think of adoption as being getting a small, tiny baby that's, uh, that's doesn't, you know, not been around for five minutes and uh, adopting it into a family, and it will grow up always thinking that this is his mummy and daddy around it. That was not the way adoption worked in the Roman society. Adoption was a matter of getting somebody, probably in their 20s or 30s, you thought would be a good, creditable person to take your family name on, and saying, will you consent to have our family name as your name? Will you... C- Will you consent to come under the the authority of the father of this household? If you take our name, if you become part of our family, we will leave you all our money when we die. (laughs) And so it was a matter of of becoming heir of somebody else. And it was usually an old childless couple who thought, whoa, our family's going to die out. Our family name is going to disappear unless we do something here. And so you didn't choose a baby who knows how a baby's going to turn out. You choose somebody who was a little bit older and whom you wanted to take on your name and take your glory into a new century. This, uh, on the, the the right-hand side here, is the emperor Hadrian. And Hadrian, when he was 62, adopted Antoninus Pius because he could see he was going to die. He wasn't going to have any children. There was going to be no emperor for Rome. So he adopted Antoninus Pius, who was actually, at that point, 54. <laughs> just eight years younger than the guy who adopted him. Different idea of adoption, really, isn't it? And uh, in that year, Hadrian died, and Antoninus Pius became the emperor. And he got a little bit worried about his position, so he adopted two people, Marcus Aurelius, and again, uh, it was so that Marcus could become emperor after him. And Marcus Aurelius was 17 at that point. He also adopted Lucius Verus, who was only eight years old. And he thought, well, one of them should survive and be emperor. And uh, in fact, they both survived. And they had to share the empire between them. And uh, you might just notice he's got very sharp eyes. There's another picture up uh, in the top there. And that is the father of Lucius Verus, who was already dead, but Hadrian had tried adopting him and then he disobligingly died. So he didn't get to be heir of anything, but others did. So that was the way it worked. And this is what Paul means when he talks about adoption that God has taken people he didn't deserve to be part of his family and put them right there in his family. And so that means that they are his heirs. They bear his family name. They bear his identity. They are part of the family of God, and they look forward to everything that the father's going to give them in the future. You could actually adopt a child in the Roman Empire and give them what was coming to them before you actually died. And then the father has the chance to just sit back in his old age and uh, uh, watch his children that he has adopted into his family, enjoying all the good, the well that he's got to give them. And this is the picture that Paul uses. We've been adopted into God's family. We've already got a bit of the blessing that he's got for us, but one of these days it's going to be even bigger. So that's the first thing. We're adopted. The second thing, and there are three of these, so don't despair. We're really done. The second thing is when the Spirit comes in, we know God. This, this, his spirit, says our text, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It's that God's spirit says to us, yep, you're God's children. You really do belong in the family. And we know God in a way that other people don't. Now, this worries some people. I've never felt a sort of funny liver shiver inside me. I don't really know if it's happened or not. How do I know it's not just imagination? How do I know that I really do have a relationship with God? Well, one of my great heroes uh, preached a sermon on this once. This is Alexander McLaren. I feel a great kinship to Alexander McLaren. For one thing, he was pretty untidy like I am. For another thing, he was Scots. And for another thing, he got a job coming down to preach to the heathen English. So, you know, a lot in common with this guy. I'm working on the beard, but it's not happened yet. Okay, now what he said, looking at this verse, was this. Uh, now, this great text which I have ventured to take is one that has often and often tortured the mind of Christians. They say of themselves, I know nothing of any such evidence. I am not conscious of any spirit bearing witness with my spirit. I do not feel anything that corresponds with my idea of what such a grand supernatural voice as the witness of God's spirit in my spirit must needs be. And therefore, I doubt whether I am a Christian at all. Has it really happened? How do I know if something fancy hasn't happened in my heart? And McLaren's answer was to look at two verses together. What is this verse? And he says, when you look at verses 15 to 16, what it's really saying is this. When we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself is bearing witness with our spirit. That's how you know that the the, the Holy Spirit is working in you because something in you cries, Abba, Father. And you see I don't think I've ever used those words in my life. I can't be a Christian. Now, what it means is this. Abba is the sort of family word for God. If you go on the beach in uh, Tel Aviv in Israel uh, this morning, where it's definitely not like this, you will hear lots of little children going, Abba, Abba. Abba, buy me an ice cream. Abba, me a, you know, let me bury you in the sand. Abba, come in the water with me, because Abba is the family name, and uh, it's the word that only an intimate child in the family could could use. You can't use it unless you belong to the family. And say, uh, McLaren says, is this, this verse is saying that there is something in us, if we're genuine Christians, that responds to the Father, that just just, just senses. That he's there, and he says, when you look at the other verse, which is from Galatians, then you see that what's happening in you is not just something that you started. I want you to be my dad. It's something that the Holy Spirit has started in you. The verse in Galatians chapter four says this: Because you are His children, God sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Abba Father. Think, whoa, this is confusing. But I was the one who was doing the Abba Father bit. Now he's saying the Spirit's doing it. And McLaren says, yes, that's the point. Everything in you that's different, although you go along with the process, is produced by the Holy Spirit. And the Son that the Holy Spirit really has landed, has arrived in your life, is changing you as a person and is that he gives you this relationship with god that you never had before this sense that you do belong to god's family and mclaren goes on saying it's the same with everything else the spirit does he wants to make you holy he gives you new desires he prompts you in a different direction that's him that's not you it's not just you trying on your own he gives you the sense that it's, it's worthwhile praying because god answers prayer and you find yourself praying as you never did before he opens up the scriptures to you he gives you a new love for other Christians and it may feel that you're doing it, but you're not. It's the Holy Spirit working through you that's making all of them happen. So, McLaren goes on and says this. And wherever in the heart there springs up heavenward a thought, a wish, a prayer, a trembling confidence, it is because that came down first from heaven and rises to seek its level again. All that is divine in man comes from God. All that tends towards God in man is God's voice in the human heart and not for the possession and operation, the sanctifying and quickening of a living divine spirit granted to us, our souls would forever cleave to the dust and dwell upon earth, nor ever rise to God and live in the light of his presence. He was great at long, complicated sentences, McLaren, wasn't he? But you, you see what he's saying, and he goes on to say this, every Christian then may be sure of this, that howsoever feeble may the thought and conviction in his heart of God's fatherhood, he did not work it, he received it only cherished it, thought of it, watched over it, was careful not to quench it. In origin, it was God's. And it is now and ever the voice of the divine spirit in the child's heart. So don't look for something unusual, weird, funny inside you. The fact that you are a Christian is the way that the Holy Spirit is quietly starting to change you. It's happening inside you all the time. And most of the people I know who say, I'm not sure I'm a Christian or not, I'm really not sure whether it's, it's happened to me. You can see from the outside, they've changed. God has really arrived. He's doing things in their life. When we look within, it's like standing in the water thinking, this will never support. One. But when you look inside yourself, you're not going to see any evidence. When you, you, you realize what God is doing through the Holy Spirit to change you and make you say, Abba, you're my dad, that's incredible. That's when the conviction starts to arrive. So there's a third thing as well. And with this, I'm finished. Where the spirit comes in. Here's a gravestone. This is the gravestone of Major Daniel Webster Whittle, who was a major in the uh, Union Army in the American Civil War. He was already a Christian before he went into the, 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 the army. But uh, through the war, he saw some pretty horrible things and his arm was shot through at one point. He almost lost the arm, but didn't quite. And it was pretty useless for the rest of his life. After the war, he became a preacher, and a hymn writer, and he wrote lots of the the, the hymns that became popular in the second half of the nineteenth century. Mm. And um, one of the things he he wrote was about the fact that we are heirs of God's glory. And one money. We are going to be transformed, if we're genuine Christians in the the Spirit of God is alive, we are going to be transformed into the very likeness of Jesus. And he wrote a hymn, which is not much sung these days, but it's a great hymn, about what that was going to mean. The heaven shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than day, the saints shall shine in glory as Christ doth them array. The beauty of the Saviour will dazzle every eye in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Pain shall then be over. Will sin and sigh no more. Behind us all of sorrow and naught but joy before. A joy in our Redeemer as we to him are nigh. In the crowning day that's coming by and by. Oh, the crowning day is coming. is coming by and by. When our Lord shall come in power and in glory from on high. The glorious sight shall dazzle each way watchful eye. In that crowning day that's coming by and by. That's the prospect that's the spirit, that's what he does. And so the message ends our section this morning by saying this, so don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent. There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. Let's pray together, shall we?